Well, good morning, EVP Fullerton. Uh, it is such an absolute joy and honor to be here with you this morning. Uh, for those of you who weren't here for, for Bob's introduction to me at the beginning, my name is Chris Ward, and I am a pastor on staff at Friends Church, uh, Your Belinda. I'm one of the teaching pastors here. Uh, but uh, I will say that EVP Fullerton holds such a unique and special place in my heart, and that is because I did grow up here. Uh, my parents attended here for the first, uh, for 20 plus years. Uh, I was here for the first 16 or so years of my life. Um, I was actually one of the first babies to be dedicated here in this worship center. And uh, as I shared that with, yeah, I shared that with uh, someone here this morning, they say, oh good, it's stuck. So it did, it did stick, so that's good. Um, and I just want to know, just to let you know, it is, it is really a dream come true for me to be able to be here with you this morning. Uh, now I did speak here a couple of years ago, and like in, in the life of your church, a lot has changed in my life in the past couple of years. When I was here previously, I was at, just ending my time at Rock Harbor Church in Costa Mesa, I was one of the teaching pastors there, and uh, my wife and I have since moved up to, to Friends Church in Yorba Linda, as I said. Uh, we, have, uh, we have moved from Costa Mesa to North Orange County, but by far, the biggest change that has come to uh, the life of my wife and myself is that five months ago we welcomed our baby boy Lucas Douglas Ward into the world and we'll put a picture of him on the screen yeah I know that I'm biased but that's a pretty cute kid isn't it and uh, despite the many offers from people at my church to take him I do think we're going to keep him so uh, just to, to get that out of the way ahead of time but uh, anyway, I, I know that you had no say in the matter as to whether or not I would teach here today, but thank you so much for having me here. I am truly privileged to be here. As we uh, open up the Word of God, uh, before we do that, I would love it if we could just bow our heads in a word of prayer and ask for God's blessing on what we're going to say here. Father, we, uh, we just thank you so much for uh, just this privilege to gather together as a, as a community, God. I thank you for uh, the fact that, that uh, you are able to move different teachers in different churches around uh, this area and, and even far away, God, that, that you, uh, you allow us to be, uh, see the, your kingdom at work in a bunch of different areas, Father. And God, as we turn your attention to your word this morning and see what it would have to say to us, um, Father, I, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be present in this place. I pray that, uh, that he would speak through me. I pray that my words would be his, God, that you would have me say here this morning what you want me to say. God, your word is alive, and I pray that, that it would come to life for, for all of us gathered here, and that we would be challenged, we would be encouraged, we would be inspired uh, by what you have to say to us. Father, would we not leave this place today the same? Um, God, would everything that we say, would what we do here be pleasing to you? We ask this in your son's name, and everyone said, amen. Amen. Well, before we uh, do dive into the text of scripture I want us to look at here this morning, you're, you're going to be out of your series in Luke for this particular week. I do want to say a few words of introduction in order to frame this within the right perspective. Um, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, I was on staff for a couple of years at Rock Harbor Church in Costa Mesa, and I actually did get the opportunity while I was on staff to work with your senior pastor, Mike Erie. We overlapped just a couple of months. He was, he was, he was leaving as I was coming, but he actually is the one who hired me at, at Rock Harbor, and I was initially going to be uh, a teaching associate pastor under him, but then circumstances changed and he ended up leaving. But I did work for a couple of weeks with him, a couple of months, and uh, during that time I found out that Mike Erie and myself are about as different as two people can get. 
Um, I don't know if you know this about your senior pastor, but he tends to be a little bit on the, on the louder side, a, a little bit more extroverted and outgoing. That is not me at all. I, I, am, I am much more shy, I'm much more in, introverted, I'm much more of a quiet person. And so it was kind of an interesting dynamic working with him for the short time that I did. Uh, one of my favorite stories I love to tell is during my interview process, and we were headed out to lunch, and, and I drove him, and we were headed to Subway or something like that. And so he was in the front passenger seat, and as we were driving, he started changing my radio stations. Who does that with someone you just met, right? But that is, uh, that is Mike Erie for you. Um, well, I did find out that during our time together, there is one thing that Mike and I do have in common, and that is that we are both really huge college football fans. Now, we do root for different teams. Mike roots for Ohio State, bless his soul, and uh, I root for my alma mater, which is USC. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, in, my, in your eyes, half of your eyes, I go way up. The other half of your eyes, I drop way off the radar, right? So I hesitate sharing that. But we do, we're both really big college football fans. And uh, not too long ago, I came across an article on ESPN that reminded me of your lead pastor, uh, not only because it was college football, because it, but also because it talked about a tradition that Mike implemented while he was at Rock Harbor. And I don't think he does this anymore, but there was a room right off the worship center at Rock Harbor. It's called the Green Room, and it was where all of us pastors would meet before we would head into the service. And what Mike had done is he, had, uh, he hung a, a, the Ohio State logo right next to the door exiting into the worship center. And the final thing he did before he would teach every week is he would hit that logo on his way out for inspiration or motivation. I'm not quite sure why he would do that, but that is what he would do. And that's exactly what this article on ESPN was about. It was about a tradition at many schools where right before the college football players, right before they run onto the field, there is usually a banner or a sign, usually with an inspirational saying on it, that the players will hit, or at the very least, it's the last thing they see before they run out onto the field. And so I thought, in honor of your lead pastor and the one thing that we have in common, that it would be fun this morning, just really quickly, to look at a couple of these and see if you can't guess what school they are from. Okay, so we'll put the first one on the screen. Can any of you guess what school this particular one is from? It's from LSU, you're right. And one of the ways you may be able to tell is it says LSU right there on the screen. I I actually forgot to crop that out of the photo when I sent this in. Uh, But this is the wind bar from from LSU, and it's actually a goalpost that they had cut down, and they cut a section of it off, and they painted wind on it. And you can even see the hands in the corner there, and this is one of the last things that LSU players play, uh, hit. Well, we'll look at this next one. This one's a little bit harder to guess. Uh, If you can't read it, there it is. We like it on the West Coast here. The road to the Rose Bowl begins here. What school is this from? I heard it. So it's a little bit of a trick one. It's not a Pac-12 school. This is actually from Wisconsin. And that's what they see before they run out. So one guy down here got it. That's very good. This next one, I will tell you where it's from because it's from my alma mater. Now, it's actually not there anymore, but it was there during the Pete Carroll era. And uh, actually, yeah, he, he, he came up with this himself. And so... Um, it makes sense, doesn't it? If you can't read it, it says, remember, it's not cheating if you don't get caught. Interesting fact, Jim Tressel took that for the last few years of his time at Ohio State. So, good thing Mike's not here, right? Well, by far, by far, the most famous of all of the banners on there is one I don't have a picture of. I actually have a replica of it. And many of you will know immediately where this school is, where, what school this is from. Where is this from? 
Notre Dame, right. This is Notre Dame's very famous play like a champion today. And this is probably the most famous of all of them. And honestly, even though I'm a Trojan, if I were a college football player, this would probably be the one that I would like the best. And the reason why is because as an individual player, I have no say as to whether or not we're going to win a game. There's a lot involved in that. I have no say as to whether or not we're going to be able to make it to the Rose Bowl. But I do have a say as an individual player whether or not I am playing like a champion in any given game. And I would imagine, especially at a school like Notre Dame, with all the the responsibility and all the expectations that are on those players' shoulders, this was something that really grounded them and centered them, reminded them of what's important as they head out to play that game. So, why do I share this with all of you? Well, the reason I share it with you is because when I I read that article, not only did I think of your senior pastor, Mike Erie, I also thought a, a very interesting question came to my mind. And that question was, what if there was a sign like that? For the Christian faith. Now, hear me out on this, but what if when we became a Christian, God instructed us to hang a sign above our door? And it would be the last thing that we would see as we go out into the world each and every day. And if there were such a sign, what what would be written on it? What would He instruct us to write on that particular sign? What would He want uh, us to be reminded of each and every day? Now, listen, this is a very dangerous question. I understand that. It's dangerous to suggest that there's only one answer to it that all of us would agree on. It's dangerous to suggest that it would be a statement that could fit on a sign that would fit above our door. So I understand that. But that being said, I do believe today that we're going to come across a a verse in Scripture that comes pretty close to being a one-sentence summary of what should motivate us, of what should inspire us, and of what we should be reminded of each and every day as people who would follow after God. So with that as an introduction, grab your Bibles, and we are going to turn to the book of Micah today. Micah chapter 6 is where we're going to be. And to warn you, Micah is one of those impossible Old Testament books to find. It's near the end of your Old Testament. It's right in the middle of the Minor Prophets. If you're kind of thumbing through your Bibles, you'll hit Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, and then you'll hit Micah. If you hit Nahum, if you hit Habakkuk, if you hit Revelation, you have gone too far, okay? So Micah chapter 6 is where we're going to be. And as you find that, let me give you just a little bit of background on the book of Micah. Micah was written about 700 years or so before Jesus, and it was written in somewhat of a dark time in the history of the Israelites because they were being threatened by a foreign nation, the Assyrians. There was this Assyrian nation that was growing more and more powerful, largely by warfare, by invading other countries, and at the time Micah was written, they are right at the borders of Israel. And this is having a very interesting reaction among the Israelites. There are some people who are obviously very concerned about this and worried that any second uh, Assyria is going to overtake them. There are other people, however, who are not concerned about this at all because they say we are God's chosen people. God would never allow anything bad to happen to us. And so it's in within this kind of split opinion, split uh, personalities that they have going on here in Israel about what this threat is that God raises up a prophet by the name of Micah. And he gives Micah a very interesting message. And that message is that really these Assyrians are actually a form of God's judgment. Uh, The reason that these Assyrians are threatening you is because you have not done as you're supposed to do. And unless you repent, unless you shape up, they will invade you and they will overtake you. And that's really what the first several chapters of Micah are about. They're about God kind of through Micah enumerating all the different ways that Israel has failed and telling them that unless they repent, they are going to be all but destroyed by this foreign army. And all of that leads us then to Micah chapter 6, which is really the culmination of the book of Micah. 
And as we come to Micah chapter 6 and start reading it, there's a very interesting scene that begins to unfold in front of us. Let's pick it up in verse 1. Micah writes this, listen to what the Lord says, stand up, plead my case before the mountains, let the hills hear what you have to say. So we're, we're being invited in on a really interesting scene, and what it is, is there's actually a trial that is taking place. We are being invited into a courtroom, and we can tell that from a couple of different things in this first verse. First of all, as you see there, it says, plead my case. Some of your Bibles plead your case, not that big of a deal, but plead my case. So someone is being told to, to plead a case, and that indicates it's a trial. Also, we are, we are clued into it's a trial by the different players that are involved in this. And when we begin to pick apart the first couple of verses, you see that there are four players, or four characters, if you will, that are involved in this particular trial. First of all, like in any trial, in any courtroom scene, there is a lawyer. And the lawyer is Micah himself. He is the one who is actually being told to arise. He is being summoned off the bench to plead the case of God. Secondly, there is a plaintiff, the one who is bringing a charge against someone else. And the plaintiff, in this particular case, is God. He is bringing a charge against a group of people. Thirdly, there is a jury. And I think the jury is the most interesting of all of this. Can you tell from this first verse what the jury is? It's the mountains. It's the hills. They are the jury. And that picks up on an Old Testament theme where the mountains were considered to be a great jury because they were witnesses to all that had gone on in this world. And so you have the lawyer who's Micah, you have the plaintiff who's God, you have the jury who's the hills and the mountains. There's only one player left in this scene, and it is the defendant. But interestingly, in the first verse, really in the first verse and a half, we don't yet know who the defendant is. God is bringing charges against someone, but we're not yet quite sure who it is. And that's probably deliberate. There's probably a little bit of suspense that is being built up for us. Who is God bringing to court? Who is God have an accusation against? Now, if you were an Israelite at this time, you knew who God was bringing to, to court. You were convinced it was going to be the Assyrians. Of course, right? Here is this evil nation that is threatening you, and you hear, hey, there's a trial. God is going to bring the Assyrians to court. He is going to judge them. He is going to find them guilty, and they're going to get their punishment. So that's what you're thinking if you're an Israelite. Let's see if they're right. Verse 2. Hear you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. So once again, the mountains are the jury. They're being summoned here. Uh, And here it is. For the Lord has a case against. And what does it say there? Does it say the Assyrians? No, what does it say? It says his people. The Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. Here's what I want you to do. A little bit of audience participation here. On the count of three, I want you to all make this sound. Okay, it's a surprise sound. Can you do that for me? I'm a guest, so you have to be nice to me. Okay, ready? One, two, three. (laughs) Good job, Evie Free. That is the reaction that Israel would have had. Us? We're the defendants? God is bringing a charge against his people? Wait, God, how can that be? That doesn't make sense. I mean, to give you an indication of just how shocking and surprising this is, imagine a different scenario. Imagine it's Poland in World War II, and the German forces under Hitler, they are right against your borders. You know any second they're going to invade you, and you hear, hey, there's a man who claims to speak for God. He has a message for God, and he's going to be in the town square. So you head out to the town square to hear from this prophet, and this prophet stands up, and he says, there is a trial that is about ready to take place. God has a charge against a group of people, and you're thinking, well, of course, it's the Germans, right? And he says, no, God has a charge against all of you. And you're thinking, us? Wait, God, no, 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 no. I mean, I know we're not perfect, but compared to to Germany under Hitler, I mean, we're saints, right? 
And that's what the Israelites likely are thinking here. God, wait, wait, wait. No, let's get things in perspective. The Assyrians are barbarians. They're pagans. How in the world can you have a complaint, a charge against us? And that's a very good question. Why is it that God is bringing a charge against the Israelites? Why is he dragging them into court? Well, the short answer to that question is, it's because the Israelites have broken a contract with God. It's because the Israelites have broken a contract with God. What do I mean by that? Well, let's go. You don't have to turn there in your Bibles. Go back in your minds to the book of Exodus. A little bit of Old Testament history. After God brings the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, before he leads them onto the promised land, you know what he does with them? He actually enters into a contract with them. Now, the biblical term is covenant, but for our purposes today, it's really nothing more than a contract. And in this contract, God promises two things, and he requires two things. First of all, he promises two things. He promises blessing, and he promises protection. He promises blessing. He says, I'm going to lead you to this land. It's a beautiful land. It is flowing with milk and honey, and you're never going to want or need for anything in this land. Your crops are always going to be fertile. Your your calves are always going to be fat. You are going to be blessed. Secondly, he says, I'm going to protect you. The Israelites were not very good at warfare. That was by design. God did not want his people to be good at warfare. But God said, even though you're not going to be very good at war, you will never have to worry about a foreign nation invading you because as he says in Exodus, I will fight your battles for you. You need only to be still. So God blesses them and he protects them. In exchange for that, remember it's a contract, in exchange for that, he requires two things. And what are those two things? Love me and love others. And that's it. As long as you love me, as long as you have no other gods before me, as long as you never make an image of me and begin worshiping that, and as long as you love others, as long as you love your neighbor as yourself, as long as you take care of the poor and the oppressed and the outcasts in your society, you will always have my blessing, you will always have my protection. And this sounded like a great deal to the Israelites. And so in Exodus chapter 24, they entered into this contract. Now, fast forward 700 years to the book of Micah. How well have the Israelites done at holding up to their end of the contract? horribly, right? Horribly. In fact, for almost 700 years, they have not done anything that God has said. And that's really what the book of Micah is about, the first several chapters. It's God enumerating all the different ways that they have failed to love him and failed to love others. Now think about it. What happens in our day when someone breaks a contract? You sue them, right? You bring them into court. And so that's why the Israelites are being brought to trial here. It's not that God isn't upset with the Assyrians. He is. And he talks about the judgment they will receive earlier in Micah. But the Assyrians did not enter into a contract with God. Only the Israelites did. And they have broken it. And so that's why he's bringing them to court. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Even though it is so clear that the Israelites have not held up to their end of the bargain, God does something pretty amazing next. He actually takes the defendant's stand. And he allows Israel to bring accusations against him. That's what we see in verse 3. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. And that phrase, answer me there, can be translated. You may see it in some of your Bibles. Testify against me. So God is taking the defendant's stand. And he's saying, okay, Israel, you can bring accusations against me. What have I done wrong? How have I not held up to my end of the contract? And you can imagine, can't you, kind of an awkward silence. Because who in the world wants to bring charges against God, right? And and, and at the end of the day, there are no charges to bring against him. He has done what he said he would do. 
And that's why in verses 4 and 5 now he lists some of the things that he did. He says, I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. I blessed you, I protected you, I gave you great leaders. Verse 5, my people, remember what Balaam, king of Moab, plotted and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gagal. This is from Joshua chapter 24. And as the Israelites were headed into the promised land, there was this guy who wanted to curse them. God made him bless them instead. Into verse 5, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. So God is standing here and he's saying, listen, I have done what I am supposed to do. I have held up to my end of the bargain. And I do believe that that you can read some emotion in here. Because I do think God has some emotion in this particular passage. If you're a parent, you can definitely identify it, right? Your son comes to you and says, mom, dad, can I have an iPhone? And you say to your son, you know, we think you're a little too young for an iPhone. And how does your son take it? really well, right? He says, okay, mother and father, I respect your decision. You always know what's best for me. I shall go to my room and never ask of this again, right? No, that's not what they do. What do they do? They say, oh, you never do anything for me, mom. You never do anything for me. Dad, Jimmy's parents got him an iPhone, and you know Jimmy's parents, and you think they're horrible parents, but you don't say that, of course. No, what do you say? You say, don't do anything for you, and you begin to list off all the things that you do. I mean, it hurts you, it hurts you to hear that, right? And that's what's going on here. God says, I have done everything that I said I would do. And it's now at this point that chapter 6 of Micah takes a shift. And the reason for that, I believe, is the Israelites realize they are in trouble. They realize God has held up to his in the bargain. He has said, done what he said he would do, and they haven't. And so what do they begin doing? They begin bargaining with God. Verse 6, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? So in other words, God, what can we do to get in your good graces again? And the only thing they can think of is sacrifices. And an increasingly bigger and bigger and bigger amount of sacrifices. Middle of verse 6. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old? Or how about this? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? With 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Or what about this God? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? God, I will give you my firstborn child. I will sacrifice them if that's what it will take to get back in your good graces. And really, verses 6 and 7 here are very tragic because it shows just how far gone the Israelites are. They do not even know the God that they worship. God doesn't want any of this. He's never asked for any of this. He's never required these sort of sacrifices. One author writes this. He says, God never requires what we are in no position to give or what there is no point in giving. God wants our very selves, our lives, and our love. That is the costliest sacrifice we can bring, a living sacrifice of our souls and bodies. And that's exactly what we see in this next verse, Micah chapter 6, verse 8, probably the most famous verse in the book of Micah. He has shown you, O mortal, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. And what Micah is saying here in response to the Israelites is is God is not someone who can be bought and he is not impressed with all these sacrifices. No, he's already shown you what you're supposed to do. He's shown you what is good. It's nothing new that God wants of you. What does he want of you? He wants you to act justly. He wants you to love mercy and he wants you to walk humbly with him. And can you do me a favor here this morning? Even if you're not someone who likes to mark your Bibles, can you somehow mark Verse 8 of Micah 6. Either underline it or circle it or draw pictures of little kittens next to it. Whatever it takes to make it pop out from the page. Because this right here, this is my nomination. 
If there were a sign that we were to have above our door, this is my vote for what would be on it. Because I think in one sentence here, one verse here, we find our responsibility as Christians of what we're supposed to be about. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require, not just desire, but require of you. First, to act justly. What does that mean? That means, strictly speaking, to do what is right. But whenever you see justice talked about in Scripture, there's always an emphasis on taking care of the poor and the oppressed because often they don't have justice done to them. Secondly, he says, to love mercy. What does that mean? It means we are to delight in being kind and gracious to one another. There may come a time where we have to punish and discipline. We don't delight in that. We delight in being gracious to each other, to to be merciful to one another. And then finally, to walk humbly with your God. That means that in in everything we are to submit to God because he is the king. And what Micah is saying here is, is, listen, Israel, this is what God wants. In fact, it's what he's always wanted. Go back to that contract that you made with him. You promised that you would love God and love others. That's exactly what we see in this verse. Love God, walk humbly with your God, love others. Do justly and and love mercy. This is what God requires. And unfortunately, the Israelites are so far gone at this point, they can't even get it. They cannot even understand that. And that's why this passage ends in a very, very sad note. I'm going to read verse 9 to the end of the chapter now. And what we're going to see is a couple more accusations against Israel and then their punishment. Verse 9. The Lord, listen, the Lord is calling to the city and to fear your name is wisdom. Heed the rod and the one who appointed it. And here's the accusation. Am I still to forget your ill-gotten treasures, your wicked house, and the short ephah, which is a curse? Shall I acquit someone with dishonest scales, with bag of false weights? Their business people used to use uh, improper measurements in order to defraud the people. Verse 12, your rich people are violent, and your inhabitants are liars, and their tongues speak deceitfully. And now here's the punishment. Verse 13, therefore... I have begun to destroy you, to ruin you because of your sins. I have no more obligation to protect you. I have no more obligation to bless you anymore. You will eat but not be satisfied. Verse 14, your stomach will still be empty. You will store up but save nothing because what you save I will give to the sword. You will plant but not harvest. You will press olives but not use the oil. You will crush grapes but not drink the wine. You see, they're going to be slaves of other people so they'll do all this work but they won't get the fruit of it. Verse 16, you have observed the statues of Omri and all the practices This is of Ahab's house. Those were two horrible Old Testament kings. You have followed their traditions. Implication, you haven't done what I have asked you to do. Therefore, he says, I will give you over to ruin and your people to derision. You will bear the scorn of the nations. You will become the laughingstock, he says, of the whole rest of the world. Tough, tough God words from God to his people. Tough words from God to his people. Now, Mike this morning gave me free reign to talk on whatever I wanted to talk on with you all. Of all the sections of scripture that I could go to in the Bible, why would I choose this one right here? Well, to be honest with you, for a long time, I didn't know why. (laughs) This was a really interesting process to determine what I was going to speak on here this morning. Because uh, this wasn't my first, second, third, even fourth choice. I had all these other ideas, but unmistakably, God kept on leading me back to this particular passage. And at least initially, I could not figure out why. And then on Thursday morning, I spent some time praying and asking God for some wisdom. And he gave me maybe a little bit of an insight. I don't know if this is for sure from him, so I'll throw it out here and we'll we'll see how it lands. But one of the things that struck me is that the Evie Free Fullerton that I am speaking to right now is very different from the Evie Free Fullerton that that I spoke to two years ago. I mean, I'm sure you have, but have you taken a step back and taken stock of all that has occurred here in the last two years? 
You have grown by thousands of people. You have added multiple services. There are all these new ministries that are going on. You have remodeled your worship center. And I got to tell you, as a pastor, uh, 15, 20 minutes away, I look at what's going on here and I say, wow, that is really impressive. And it is. But there's a danger in that. And Mike would be the first to tell you this. And this is not just a danger for churches. It's a danger always that we're going to face in the Christian life. And the danger is that we would begin to think that God is impressed with the same things that we're impressed with. And that God uses the same criteria and God uses the same rubric to measure success that we do. And we learn throughout Scripture that is not the case. God does not measure success in the same ways that we do. And God is not impressed with the same things that we are impressed with. And that's one of the things that we learn here from Micah chapter 6. Why is it that these Israelites were so willing to give all these sacrifices to God? Well, among other things, it's really impressive. I mean, imagine the scene in your mind, thousands of calves, 10,000 rivers of oils, people carrying their firstborn child to the temple, all to show how, how much they want to get on God's good side again. That is impressive, right? And if we're impressed by it, surely God is going to be impressed with it as well. And what does God say? No, I'm not impressed with the same things that you're impressed with. And I don't measure success by the same criteria that you do. So what is it that impresses God? How does God measure a church? How does God measure an individual life? I think we find it right here in verse 8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? First, to do what is right. To do justly and to stand on the side of justice. To to watch out for those who are oppressed and those who are the outcasts in society. Second, to love mercy. To be kind and to be gracious to one another. And thirdly, to walk humbly with your God. That's what God looks at. That's what counts in God's eyes. And one of the things that we learn from Micah 6 is that there is no substitute for a life of humble obedience to God and love for others. There is no substitute for a life of humble obedience to God and love for others because that's what he pays attention to. Do me a favor, turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. I want to see this principle play out in the New Testament. We're going to pick it up in verse 21. Matthew 7, 21. This is right at the very end of of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And as he brings this great speech to a close, he ends with one of the favorite topics that he teaches on. And that is the true and false disciple. And in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, maybe a familiar section of scripture to many of you, he outlines what a false disciple looks like. And this is what he says. Verse 21, Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, at the end of time, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. Now stop right there. What a list of impressive acts, right? They perform miracles. They drove out demons. They prophesied in the name of God. Anyone in their day and in our day would look at that and say, surely God's approval is on that person, right? Surely God is pleased with what is going on with that person. Well, what does God really think of him? We see it in verse 23. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Why does he say that to them? We learned it in verse 21, because they weren't doing the will of They weren't doing the will of of our Father in heaven. Which means, among other things, they were not acting justly, they were not loving mercy, and they were not walking humbly with God. No matter how impressive it may look to us, there is no substitute 
for a life of humble obedience to God and love for others. I remember when God first started to, to kind of teach me this. It was, it was several years ago. I was a sophomore in college, actually. And my faith was really starting to take hold in college. And I was reading my Bible, and, and I came across this, this thing called fasting. And I had never fasted before. I was kind of confused on the matter. And so I asked a, a Christian friend of mine who was a little bit older than me, I said, what's this deal with fasting? And he explained it to me, and he said, you know, that would be a great thing to try. In fact, I'll do it with you. Why don't we set aside a, a lunch later this week, and we will both fast through it. So that, that meal came, and instead of eating lunch that day, I, I prayed, and I read my Bible, and I, and, I, and I journaled. And I remember thinking during that time, wow, God is pretty pleased with me right now. I, I know he is. Because here I saw his word said to do something, and I did it. Well, fast forward to dinner time. I had skipped a meal, and uh, I had only, was only going to skip one, and so I was a little hungry around dinner time, and I decided to reward myself with the most decadent, indulgent meal that I could think of. So, of course, I headed to Kentucky Fried Chicken, right? <laughs> and I got in my car, and I drove there, and the KFC was, I was in L.A., so the KFC was not in the best part of the neighborhood. And sure enough, when I got out of the car, a homeless guy approached me and asked me for some money. Now, I had enough money to both buy myself dinner and to buy him dinner at the same time. But in that particular moment, for some reason, I just didn't want to be bothered. And so I took the easy way out, and I lied to him. I said, no, I'm sorry, man, I don't have any dinner or money. Brothers and sisters, that was 12 years ago. I remember the expression on his face like it was yesterday. And I know that this may sound weird, but I remember it looked to me as if he knew. He knew I had fasted. He knew I had prayed. He knew I had read my Bible, and he knew that I had just lied to him. And as he turned around and and disappeared, almost literally, behind a car, I could not help but think that was a test, and I had failed. I had failed. And when I stand before God at the end of time, he is not going to give me credit for the time I spent reading my Bible and fasting and praying on that particular day. Not at all. Why? Because here he had given me an opportunity to to show mercy. Here he had given me an opportunity to to act justly, and I had failed. There's no substitute for a life of humble obedience to God and love for others. Not even pious religious acts, and especially not even pious religious acts. God will not have us spend all of our time doing these great religious acts. Why? Because he wants us out in the world doing stuff. That's the only way we can fulfill Micah 6, 8. One last passage for you, Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. We're going to start in verse 34. This is the other side of what we just saw in Matthew 7. Matthew 25, verse 34. It's it's a parable of the end of time. Jesus has separated everybody into two groups of people, sheep on one side, goats on the other. Only the sheep get the ability to be with him for eternity. And according to Jesus, in this passage, what is it that gives the sheep the ability to be with him for eternity? Matthew 25, verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Why? Verse 35. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When do we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When do we see you in sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did for me. What is it that gives the sheep the ability to spend eternity with Jesus? According to this passage, it's because they did what he wanted. Insignificant acts. Giving a person a cup of water. Giving people who need clothes, clothes. Visiting someone who is sick and who is in prison. 
Insignificant acts, and might I add, to very insignificant people. Not the greatest of the brothers and sisters, the least of the brothers and sisters. No one else would have paid attention to this, except the one who counted, God. Is this not Micah 6.8 in the New Testament? Of course it is, because it's the heart of God. It's always been the heart of God, and so of course it would be the heart of Jesus as well. You're going through a series in Luke, right? Is it an exaggeration to say that Jesus' whole ministry could be summarized by Micah 6.8? What is it that Jesus did in his life? What is it that he taught others to do? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. And as people called to be conformed to the image of Christ, we are called to follow his example. But it's tough. It is. In fact, the only way we can do it is it requires God to reach in and change our heart. And I want you to hear me in all of this. I am not saying that this is something we are able to do in our own power. We cannot do it apart from God. He has to reach in our heart to do it. And and we will fight him along the way. And it will be slow going. And I say that because I speak from personal personal experience. Several years ago, God got a hold of the heart of, of the lead pastor at Friends Church, Matthew Court. And as a result of that, we changed our whole focus as a church. We used to be very kind of inward focused, and and we started getting out in the community and in the world. And one of the things that we did is we changed our whole mission emphasis, and we focused on the country of India almost exclusively, and and specifically on a people group in India known as the Dalits. And the Dalits are are the outcasts of India. In the Hindu religion, they're thought of as, as, as less than dogs, and in India, they're often treated that way. And so we we had our whole focus really on these people and doing what we could to come alongside them. And there was, for almost a year straight, there was not a weekend at our church where you could not hear about our efforts in India. And a lot of people didn't like it. And people complained and people questioned what they were doing and I was chief among them. Now I was on staff so I couldn't do it publicly but if anyone asked privately what I thought of what we were doing I would let them know I don't think it's good I just don't think this is what a church should be doing. Well, eventually God brought me out of that church for a couple of years. That's when I was at Rock Harbor. And then two years later, he brought me back. And in the intervening time, God did a work on my heart. And when I came back, I was all for this particular initiative that we were doing. But I found out that a lot of people were still questioning it. And that's why one Sunday I felt compelled to stand up in front of my church. And first of all, I confessed my hard-heartedness. And secondly, I said to them this. I said, listen, we may question the methodology of what we're doing in India because there's always different ways to do things. But I said, I hope that none of us find ourselves questioning the mission and the motivation because here are a group of people that for centuries have not had justice done to them. And here are a group of people that for centuries have not had mercy shown to them. And God calls us to act justly, and he calls us to show mercy. And now that we know about this group of people, what are we to do? Do we now just ignore them? Do we turn our back on them? Do we pretend that they they don't exist? Listen, we may not ever be able to have any long-term impact on their situation. But God does not call us to change their situation. He simply calls us to act justly and love mercy. And I want to let you know, men and women, I have made a personal decision in my life. And that is, if all else fails, I will always stand on the side of the poor, and I will always stand on the side of the oppressed, and I will always stand on the side of the defenseless, and I will always stand on the side of the outcast. Because as I read my Bible, 
I see that God is on their side. And I want so desperately to be on God's side. One of my favorite verses in the Old Testament, it's from the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 22, I think it is. And God is talking about one of the the few good kings of Israel. And what is it that made him good? This is what he says. He pled the cause of the afflicted and the needy. And then it went well with him. Is that not what it means to know me, declares the Lord. And I remember, I first heard that in a seminary class. I remember sitting straight up in my chair. Because as a seminary student, I wanted to know God. And here is one of the clearest verses in all of the Bible of what it means to know God. He pled the cause of the afflicted and the needy. Is that not what it means to know me, declares the Lord. He has shown you, oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? But to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Now, I have committed the cardinal sin of a guest speaker, and that is I have gone over my time. So I will trust that the Holy Spirit will apply this to your individual lives this week and show you opportunities to act justly and love mercy and walk humbly with him. Let me close, however, with this final thing. Many of you may know the name William Wilberforce. There was a movie made about him several years ago called Amazing Grace. And uh, Wilberforce was a, a politician in Great Britain. And he actually came to Christ while he was a politician. And initially, he wanted to leave politics then and enter into the ministry. And his good friend John Newton, who wrote the lyrics to Amazing Grace, encouraged him not to. He said, you can do far more for God in politics than you ever would be able to do in the pulpit. So Wilberforce dedicated his life to the eradication of slavery in Great Britain. And three days before he died, slavery was officially abolished in Great Britain. He was once asked why he gave his life to this particular issue. And Wilberforce was a rather eloquent man, and I like what he had to say. This is what he said. Is it not the great end of religion, and in particular, the glory of Christianity, to extinguish the malignant passions, to curb the violence, to control the appetites, and to smooth the asperities of man, to make us compassionate and kind, and forgiving one to another, to make us good husbands, good fathers, good friends, and to render us active and useful in the discharge of the relative social and civil duties. And I don't know about for you, but for me, that sounds like a really fancy way of saying. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you. But to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Would you pray with me? Father, we, um, we thank you for your word that, that does challenge us, and we thank you for your word that inspires us and convicts us, God. And Father, I pray that we would take um, what we said here today, not what I said, God, but but what your word says, Father, and and we would do with it what you want us to do, God. Father, I pray that as we go and leave this particular place, Lord, that you um, you would show us ways that we can act justly, you would show us ways that we could love mercy, and Father, you would show us ways that we could walk humbly with you. God, I know that this church loves your word because it is this church that instilled the love of your word in, in myself. And God, I pray that as people who love your word, we would always and in everything seek to do it. Father, thank you. Thank you for the privilege of partnering with you in what you are doing, God. And may you always receive the credit and the glory for anything that is done. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.